Hey guys, welcome to the AC Podcast. This is Steve. Wes and I are back this week to talk about six myths that people believe about Christianity. And so we're going to be going over things like the Council of Nicaea decided the books of the Bible, or the date of Christmas was borrowed from pagan festivals. The church persecuted scientists like Galileo. Medieval Christians believed the earth was flat. Christianity is a Western religion. And Christianity teaches that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. We're going to cover all of these. But before we get there, I just want to tell you about a couple of events that are coming up. So Apologetics Canada, in collaboration with Praxis Church in Kelowna, are putting on Identity Crisis, establishing who we are and what we exist for. It is an evening of live music, thought-provoking dialogue, and opportunity to work through one of the most controversial topics in our current cultural climate. That is happening on September 16th from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Rotary Center for the Arts in Kelowna, BC. The event is free, but you have to RSVP. So go to ApologeticsCanada.com forward slash identity. Again, that's ApologeticsCanada.com forward slash identity and RSVP there. And also on Sunday, September 25th, from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m., we're going to have our next AC Literary Expedition on Dr. Assisted Suicide and the Freedom of Conscience. And we're going to invite two of our adjunct speakers, Dr. Ewan Gallagher and Dr. Raphael Samuel, yes, both are medical doctors from Ontario, to hear their perspective on these issues. Now, the freedom of conscience is not just an issue for medical professionals. It affects everyone. So I highly encourage you to join us there. You can go to Apologetics Canada com forward slash ACLE. Again, apologeticscanada.com forward slash ACLE and click on the event to sign up. You can check out all of the resources there beforehand or you can just join us on Sunday, September 25th at 4 p.m. Pacific time. Okay, let's get to our podcast. Uh, we're going to just jump right into things because I know some people really don't like all the banter at the beginning. We're going to honor your request. So jump right into things. Today, we're going to talk about six myths that people believe about Christianity. So we've done something similar before, like the most misused Bible verses and things like that. And so it's kind of in the same vein, um, or I should say a similar vein. So we're going to talk about six myths that people believe, whether people from sort of outside the church or some of these things that even people inside the church believe. And so so let's start it off with the very first one. This is sort of, Wes, this is your wheelhouse. So there is this really popular notion out there that the books of the Bible were chosen at the Council of Nicaea. Now, let's give our listeners a bit of a background. If you're like, first time brand new to anything about Christianity, the Bible isn't a single book. It is actually a collection of books. It's a library. Now, how did the Bible come together? Well, a lot of people seem to believe that uh, the books of the Bible were basically chosen, maybe even arbitrarily, by this church council at the Council of Nicaea in year 325 AD. So this is almost 300 years after the time of Jesus Christ. And this Roman emperor, Constantine, basically calls the bishops from all over the Roman Empire. And this, this is what he had in mind. Let's put a book together that we can control the people with, control the masses with. 
This was popularized especially by Dan Brown's uh, Da Vinci Code. I, I remember reading that years ago. And let me hand it over to you, Wes. This is something you've dealt with ad nauseum. So break it down for us. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that every time I hear it, I uh, sigh very deeply or uh, grow a couple gray hairs, something like that, <laughs> because I hear it on almost a weekly basis, probably a monthly basis, because I get people emailing me, I get people uh, direct messaging me about this. It's popularized, like you said, the Da Vinci Code was certainly the the kindling that activated it in, in more popular culture. It just got spread over the internet pretty quickly. And even uh, things like TikTok. I'm, I mean, I was... Mm -hmm. I don't have TikTok on my phone, but I do have a couple of people who send me TikToks that uh, they want me to review or they have questions about. And there's almost always a component of either blaming the Council of Nicaea or blaming Emperor Constantine for something or other. They're kind of like the, the whipping boys, uh, the whipping blocks of you know, conspiracy theories regarding Christianity and development paganism. And so like you said, Steve, the Council of Nicaea, it took place between May and August in, in 325 AD in what's now Turkey. That's where Nicaea is. And it was uh, mainly to resolve a theological issue known as Arianism. And so Arianism was a Trinitarian heresy, which was formulated by a presbyter in North Africa named Arius. So that's where it gets its name. Nothing to do with like Arian race or, you know, later <laughs> uh, Germanic Arianism, two things not related. But Arius was teaching in North Africa, not only that the son of God was eternally subordinate to the father, but that the son was not everlasting and that he was a created being that came into existence at a point in time. So the Council of Nicaea was formed to address this issue, which was becoming popular in a number of churches, that, that Jesus was created by the Father. Now, Arians actually believe that Jesus was divine. They just believe that he was almost like a lower class of deity than um, the Father. So everybody at the Council of Nicaea believed that Jesus was God. It was just a question of, okay, did he come into existence at a particular point in time? Yeah, we have some of those Arian sects today. Not that there was a mm -hmm. direct line from Arius to to them, but those Arian heresies were sort of revived with groups like Jehovah's Witnesses, for example. Uh, if yeah. you read their translation, the New World Translation, um, and if you go to John one one, um, in in sort of the uh, if you read any sort of standard translation like English. Uh, I keep wanting to say English Supreme Version because that's a joke that one of my fellow pastors actually um, said to me once, and it's stuck. English Standard Version <laughs> or King James or New International Version, those kinds of things. It'll say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, with capital G, God. And the New World Translation says, uh, the Word was a God, lowercase g. Right, so they they clearly look at um, Jesus as a created being. In fact, they believe uh, not that Arius believed this, but Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is actually identical to the Archangel Michael. Mm -hmm. um, you know that sort of thing. And so, yeah, so it, it, this isn't just something that was that happened way back then. We have traces of that here even today. 
Yeah, it's sometimes referred to as neo-Arianism, sort of. It's like a, a rebranding of, of the components of Arianism, but in a new way in groups, like you said, like the Jehovah's Witnesses. But all that to say, at no point during any of the council was the canon of scripture discussed. So the whole concept sitting behind something like the Da Vinci Code that, you know, Emperor Constantine, he chose books or he inserted doctrines, that is not based on anything that we have from the Council of Nicaea. And in fact, Constantine had virtually no input or Im impact on the happenings of the council. And the end result was what's known as, you know, the Nicene Creed, which you can you know look up online and find uh, an English translation of the Nicene Creed. And they also published 20 statements and a letter. But at no point in any of those things that came out of the Council of Nicaea was the the what books of the bible were inspired how many books anything like that none of these have any mentioning of the canon of scripture and discussions about recognizing not choosing the books that god had inspired those took place centuries before nicaea and would continue to be in discussion for decades after nicaea and so i think what we can say about what the individuals at Nicaea thought about scripture was that they were already quoting and recognizing the 27 books of the New Testament that we refer to today as the New Testament. Uh, they were already quoting and recognizing those as scripture within what we do see at the Council of Nicaea. So just right off the bat, Council of Nicaea, nothing to do with the Bible, a lot to do with other theological issues, particularly Arianism. And then there were a few minor uh, discussions about something like the, the the day of Easter was one of those discussions. Um, but at the end of the day, anything that we talk about Nicaea has nothing to do with the Bible. And I actually have a an article, if people want to read uh, more on this, on my blog at, at wesleyhuff.com. And it's just titled, What Happened at the Council of Nicaea? And so I go into some further details as to, you know, what that was, where this I idea and myth might have cropped up in history. If you guys want to learn more about canonization, so that is to say, you know, like how do we come to have the books in our Bible that we do, that it also connects with the question of inspiration of scripture, all that kind of stuff. We actually did a podcast a few weeks ago on this topic. And so you guys can go check that out. Now, on that note, let's tackle this. This was about Christmas of all things. The date of Christmas, December 25th, was borrowed from pagan festivals. Now, I remember watching an episode of Bones. I don't know if you've ever seen that show. Yeah, um, yeah, I remember that show. But of course, there's this really intelligent uh, for forensic scientist named Temperance. And uh, during Christmas, she stands up you know, to do her whatever little speech before they kind of drank the wine together or whatever they were drinking. And she she's a little bit socially awkward, right? So she gets up and immediately starts talking about this Roman festival of Saturnalia and how Christmas came from that and took the date. And of course, her boyfriend, who happens to be an FBI agent, you know, he he's, happens to be Catholic, right? <laughs> he's trying to stop her, you know, that, that sort of thing. Again, because this is your wheelhouse, Wes, tell us about Christmas and the dating and this whole 
stuff about Saturnalia. What what it what even is Saturnalia, and did Christmas come from that? Yeah, so this is one of my other pet peeves. The the first one, the, my major pet peeve being blaming Constantine and the Council of Nicaea. The second one, which comes up every year on Christmas, is that the date of Christmas was borrowed from pagan festivals. So obviously the date of Christmas is December 25th, right? And there are um, two candidates that basically fit the bill for this theory that you'll see the supposed borrowing from. The first is Sol Invictus, and then the second one is the one you mentioned, Saturnalia. And there are two important details that relate to this. First, there was a guy uh, named Sextus Julius Africanus. He was a Christian in the late second and early third century. And he had already come through mathematical calculations to the conclusion that Jesus was born on December 25th. And we actually have early evidence that Christians were acknowledging it as such. So he's in the late second, early third century, and he's already come to the conclusion, irrespective of anything within the Roman culture, based on some of his biblical calculations, which I'm not sure are entirely solid. (laughs) He was, there was this obsession with trying to figure out things via biblical numerology within a particular period of early church history. And so coming up with the age of the earth or coming up with you know, when Jesus was born, when Jesus died, to the exact exact date and time. Um, a few writers were kind of preoccupied with this. And so he comes to this date, December 25th. Now, Saturnalia was celebrated in December, that is true, but we don't have any evidence until later that it started being celebrated on December 25th in particular. And in fact, there's a historian, Thomas Taylor, and he argues that it's more likely that the Emperor Aurelian placed Sol Invictus on December 25th to compete with the growing rate of Christianity. And there's evidence that, you know, um, Sol Invictus and Saturnalia, the pagans actually start to copy the Christians. Certainly by the third century, Christianity was growing in, in far more prominence. And we actually have two writers, one of them, Pliny the Younger in the early second century. He'd already noted, and he's being a little bit hyperbolic, but he says that the Roman temples were being forsaken due to so many Christian converts. So he's lamenting the fact that, you know, the temples are empty because people are converting to Christianity and they're no longer participating in these regular societal pagan activities. And then the Emperor Julian, who's known as Julian the Apostate, who was the emperor for three years in the fourth century, he grew frustrated with the lack of Roman religious devotion to idols in this time, and he blames the Christians specifically for this pagan crisis of faith. So in these times, Christianity is rising in prominence, particularly within the lay people, and um, pagans it looks like probably altered some of the dates of their festivals to coincide with Christianity, not the other way around. And we don't have anything regarding Saturnalia until the 5th century with the writing of a guy named Macrobius. But he specifically says uh, that the date of Saturnalia was December 17th, not December 25th. So even then, He's not talking about December 25th as the date. He's saying it's probably earlier than that. This is yet another example of those things 
where, you know, like we think we know a piece of history, but it actually ends up being either the exact opposite or there's something more going on. And so I think, if anything, it goes to show that all of us, including myself, clearly not you, because you're sort of, you know, you know all things about history, um, but have a little more humility, I guess, right? Like, I, I, if I think I know, a, especially a piece of medieval history, chances are there's more going on than that, because often the popular notions that we have about whatever event tends to be very simple, A to B, black and white. And you know as well as I do that life can be really complex, right? And so um, any social phenomenon can be very complex. And I'm thinking of like something like the Crusades, for example, because I did spend some time studying that when I was in school. And, and that's one thing I walked away with was, okay, we have a lot of misconceptions, but man, is this complicated, right? And so I think we would do well to have a little more humility. And I'm really kind of preaching to myself too here, but and we all have our blind spots, right? We can't be experts in absolutely everything. And so when I hear a lot of these things, you know, people who are bringing up um, the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, Constantine, I try not to blame the individual because it's almost always that they've heard a narrative and they don't have any reason to question it. And there are obviously narratives that I probably believe that I, you know, I don't have the extensive knowledge or um, research background to be able to vet. And I probably believe things that are inaccurate too. And so uh, the encouragement for the listener who's listening to this is that you don't have to be the Christian encyclopedia, but it's always good to make sure that whatever we're believing, uh, whether it's to do with our faith or whether it's to do with politics or whether it's to do with whatever, you know, um, that we're trying to be informed and we're trying to uh, encourage the loving God with our minds by doing the due diligence to make sure that we're not promoting, even accidentally um, or unintentionally, something that that could be inaccurate. Uh, why don't we move on to the next couple, actually, myths? These are sort of more, has more to do with medieval history. The first one is the church persecuted scientists like Galileo. And the second one is kind of related to that that medieval Christians um, believed that the earth was flat. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about those two together, actually, because they're kind of related. Because in a sense, this has to do with the alleged conflict between science and religion. And I, I know we've talked about this before, but it bears repeating. The church persecuted scientists like Galileo. Wes, do you, do you want to start this one off? Yeah, this is a, a question that... Whenever the Middle Ages or the supposed quote-unquote Dark Ages comes up, it's almost always mentioned that Christianity was the enemy of science and rationality and progress within this period of time. And if you ask for an example to anyone who kind of makes that type of say, statement, they're almost always going to mention Galileo. You know, that, that the church persecuted Galileo, that he was this uh, scientific voice for reason, and the church was this anti-rational voice for you know, blind faith. But if you actually look into that, I mean, Galileo was living in the late 16th and early 17th century. He's actually living after the Protestant Reformation takes place. So 
Luther died in 1546 and Galileo was born in 1564. So there's more crossover between guys like Galileo and Descartes and Blaise Pascal than there is for really anyone within what is the formal Middle Ages. So we're not talking about the Middle Ages. We're actually talking about, really, a window of time that includes things like the Renaissance and the Protestant Reformation and the European Enlightenment. So it's really not fair when people try to use examples of how terrible the Middle Ages was and how terrible the Catholic Church was in, the, in this time period um, to then put a spotlight on Galileo because he's quite a bit after that. Like he's, I mean into the Enlightenment era. And if you look at Galileo himself, I mean, there's one letter that Galileo wrote to uh, the Grand Duchess Christina in which he makes a detailed and careful theological argument that certain biblical texts can be fully reconciled to the cosmology that he's describing. And there's actually this really great quote from it, this letter, where he says that the Bible tells us the way to go to heaven, not the way the heavens go. There's definitely a lot of evidence that kind of goes against this idea that Galileo was this secret skeptic and that he was pretending outwardly to be a believer. He, he would not have inserted himself into these issues at all. If that had been the case, he was clearly a genuine and staunch believer. He was using his faith and the belief in the order of the universe to look at some of these things. There's this great quote, actually, that I pulled up this morning when I was thinking about this topic by the Christian historian and uh, theologian David Bentley Hart. Now, I don't agree with everything Bentley Hart says, uh, but he does have this book, Atheist Delusions. And in it, he has this great quote, which I'm just going to read because I think it really encapsulates a lot of this idea about kind of uh, the Middle Ages and Galileo. He says, hence, modernity's first great attempt to define itself, an age of reason, emerging from and overthrowing an age of faith. Behind this definition lay a simple and thoroughly enchanting tale. Once upon a time, it went... Western humanity was the cosseted and incurious ward of Mother Church. During this time, the age of faith, culture stagnated. Science languished, wars of religion were routinely waged, witches were burned by the inquisitors, the Western humanity labored in brutish subjugation to dogma, all was darkness. Then, in the wake of the wars of religion that had torn Christendom apart, came the full flowering of the Enlightenment, and with it the reign of reason and progress. The secular nation-state arose, reduced religion to an establishment of the state, and thereby rescued Western humanity from the blood-steeped intolerance of religion. This is, as I say, a simple and enchanting tale, easily followed and utterly captivating in its explanatory tidiness. Its sole defect is that it happens to be false in every indefinable detail. (laughs) This tale of the birth of the modern world was largely disappeared from respectable, has largely disappeared rather, from respectable academic literature and survives now principally at the level of folklore, intellectual journalism, and vulgar legend. And I think that really is a good encapsulation that you have this idea of 
the Middle Ages and the persecution of individuals like Galileo. And as David Bentley Hart says, you know, that doesn't exist within the halls of academia. It's been done away with because when we actually evaluate the data, it just doesn't make sense. I find that this is just the generally the case when it comes to a lot of sort of the common historical knowledge that we have, whether it's about the you know the co- alleged conflict between science and religion, or the Crusades, or um, the witch trials, Inquisition, those kinds of things. Um, sometimes we have some details right, but most often what I see is like there it, people are just completely wrong about certain things. Um, in fact, Andy and I mm-hmm. we did our AC literary expedition a while back, and to prepare for that, we invited a Cambridge historian, um, Seb Falk, and he's written a book called The Light Ages, um, clearly uh, you know, playing on the idea of the Dark Ages, and he goes into detail about um, you know, how – well, th- this idea of Dark Ages, it's just not correct, and he – told us that the reason he wrote this book was because there was such a gap between what an average person on the street believes versus what academics believe about these things. And that's why, and this is one of those cases, this uh, whole Galileo affair. And so I've recommended this book before, but um, there is a book, uh, it's a collection of essays called Galileo Goes to Jail and Other Myths About Science and Religion. And it's got lots of uh, other things that are included in there, like things like, you know, the church suppressed the use of anesthetics um, or, you know, uh, they discouraged or even suppressed dissection of cadavers and all that kind of stuff. You know, all that is so off, like what we typically believe is just so off. And a lot of the, the sort of skewed views that we have about the relationship between science and religion especially really came during the 1800s. And so this is not uh, what people have always believed. Um, you know, we've, we've got a lot of details wrong. Uh, Galileo is definitely one of them. In fact, uh, as I understand, because the typical view is that the church actually tortured him, jailed him, tortured him, Actually, that's not true. I mean, he was placed under house arrest, but he had it pretty easy. He was never tortured. He was actually able to have his daughter do the penance for him. And it was during his house arrest that he wrote some of his best works. So clearly, he was not tortured. If he can write new stuff like that, just pumping stuff out. And Mm -hmm. so... There are so many things that we get wrong about Galileo. Yeah, and in light of that, um, Steve, why don't you dovetail into the idea of middle-aged Christians thinking the earth was flat? Yeah, this is another really common one, right? Um, the, the idea is, hey, you know, uh, the Greeks, right? The ancient Greeks like Pythagoras and all, all these other guys, they, they let's see, this was the sort of the age of secular sort of enlightenment before the enlightenment with the capital E kind of thing. And they figured out the circumference of the earth and all that kind of stuff. But the church 
burned down the great library of Alexandria and suppressed all the Greek learning, um, ushered in the dark ages. And then that knowledge was that the earth was spherical was suppressed. Why? Because the Bible talks about the four corners of the earth. And, and so people believed in the flat earth. And again, now kind of going more towards the Renaissance time, like the idea is, you know, people try to dissuade Christopher Columbus from sailing out west because they were afraid that he might fall off the edge of the earth, you know, that sort of thing. This is not true at all. I mean, if anything, Christians really did a lot for one to preserve Greek learning, uh, monks, for example, copying manuscripts and things like that. And also, it, it, this is one of those things that, you know, people think everybody knows this, right? It's common knowledge. Everyone knows that medieval people thought the earth was flat, but really this was really uh, propagated by this writer, novelist, American novelist, Washington Irving, again in the 1800s in a book called The History of the Life and Voyages of Christopher Columbus. And it's not true. In fact, if you look at some of the medieval paintings, uh, Wes, have you seen Frozen, the movie Frozen? I don't know. Uh, I might have to let that idea go. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> trying to think of a better one, but I, I couldn't. My, my mind froze, um, and I had to just let let it go. He's completely on dad mode yes, right yes, now. I've, seen, I've, I've children, so I've undoubtedly seen the movie Frozen. Yeah, in, in Frozen One, right there's the coronation ceremony of Elsa, and remember she holds a scepter in one hand and in the other hand, what does she have? Right. It's a, it's an orb. Yeah. And actually that's a really interesting point because that item, which is called a uh, globus cruciger, uh, goes right back to early depictions within Christianity. In fact, um, I mean, you see it today with the crown jewels. You'll see, uh, the, the queen of England, has you know her crown, has scepter, and this globus cruciger, which is a, a a globe with a cross on top, and that represents the earth. Yeah, and so right right back, you know, there are depictions of um, the Emperor Constantine holding one of these, and it's the idea that you know Christ has rule and reign over the earth, which is a globe. Mm hmm. And so obviously in um. If I remember correctly, in the movie The Frozen, the the cross wasn't there, and so it's not exactly Globus Cruciger in that case. And I think in the in the um, if you go way back, you know they didn't have the cross, but certainly with the Christianization of the circumMediterranean area and whatever, you start to see the cross going there. But either way. You look at some of the paintings of you know medieval kings holding a scepter in one hand and holding the globe in the other hand. Clearly, they didn't think the earth was flat. Mm -hmm. Surely, there were certain things that people believed that today we go, you know, that's not true. So, for example, some people believe that if you are standing on the earth on this side, there's sort of a mirror image of you on the opposite end. Right. So they, they call it antipodes, right? They are sort of, you know, so you have whatever you have on this side of the globe, you have sort of a mirror image on the other side of the globe. Like, so you have two suns, two moons, you know, people that are walking upside down 
that mirrors, you know, those kinds of things. I mean, even Augustine in the city of God, he rejected that idea. He's like, there is no reason really to believe that. I mean, so there were some funny things that people believed about the earth. Um, and also there were many who thought that you couldn't go past the equator because it was so hot, right? Like you couldn't go through it. But it eventually later Portuguese sailors just went <laughs> went right over it, you know, those kinds of things. And so, yeah, sure, there were certain things that people believed that we find really odd today. But the idea that the medievals believed that the earth was flat, that's just not true. Yeah. And I think, um, I mean, like I mentioned before, Constantine is an easy kind of target for lots of uh, negative press and kind of mythos about Christianity. And the Middle Ages becomes a lot of that too, right? It's another one of these draw a giant target on its back because it's just easy. And I think a part of the reason for both of those things is that we don't know a whole lot about history. And so we just kind of accept some of the prevailing ideas. I know um, uh, Carl Sagan promoted a lot of these kind of myths um, that mm. were carried on um, by guys like, uh, oh, who's the who's the popular Neil deGrasse Tyson? Who, Neil deGrasse Tyson, yeah. He's repeated a lot of these things too, that, you know, the, the Middle Ages was the Dark Ages. And, and unfortunately, if you look into the or, origination of that term Dark Ages, it was Christians who who coined those terms, and they coined them really in um, for like uh, our camp, Steve, mm-hmm. um, in the kind of uh, precipice of the Protestant Reformation to describe uh, a lot of the negative aspects of the church. And unfortunately, in kind of over arguing that, they came up with this idea that everything that the medieval Catholic Church touched mm-hmm. uh, was negative and. Um, uh, anti-progressive and and unfortunately that wasn't true and so it but it was it was christians on the whole who kind of encouraged these ideas and those were taken on by a lot of enlightenment thinkers and injected with steroids and and turned into um these these theories which make you know middle-aged christians seem kind of crazy yeah well um let's keep moving on uh, oh, by the way, again, if you want to learn more about this, um, pick up that book that I mentioned earlier. Uh, there's also the AC Literary Expedition that we did on Christianity and Science. And in fact, if you look that up on our website, appositiescanada.com forward slash ACLE. And if you just scroll down, you'll see the session that we did. We have the session recording, and we also have the podcast interview that we did with Dr. Falk. Uh, the Cambridge historian I mentioned earlier. So go check that out. I think many of you will find it really fascinating. Um, Let's move on to the next myth. Christianity is a Western religion. Now, I have to say, as somebody who comes from the East, this was a very sort of common pushback from other people around me who weren't Christians, just thinking, yeah, Christianity is this Western thing. In fact, if you go to North Korea, Christianity is tied with Western power in terms of their their views. And so to accept Christianity is to accept Western influence. Um, And so there's this very strong association between Christianity and the West. And a lot of people think um, that Christianity is a Western religion. I remember uh, when I was in Bible school, one of my friends was this 
older guy, middle-aged guy from Laos. And that's the pushback he got all the time when he went home to evangelize. Oh, Jesus is a white man's God. So let's let's take this song. Christianity is a Western religion. Uh, what do you think, Wes? Well, I think it's a little bit ignorant of the history of geographical Christianity. I mean, I think you could say that within the last 200 years, Christianity has maybe been overrepresented as a Western religion. But even that's probably a stretch. I think, you know, original Christianity was not tied to any one single ethnicity or um, kind of overrepresented uh, particular demographic. And part of the reason for that was, you know, you read in Acts chapter 15 at the Council of Jerusalem, they basically make the statement that, you know, that the question is, um, do you need to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses to be saved? And they say, no, you know, you don't need to be converted and become part of the ethnic nation of Israel in order to be a follower of Jesus as the Messiah. And what that does is that unclasps Christianity from any one specific uh, nationality. And so then what you have is, you know, Christianity uh, was mostly a Middle Eastern and um, Mediterranean and Asiatic movement within the first 300 years. Uh, it was a predominantly what we would describe as, you know, um, brown skinned. Um, it was uh, then quite popular in North Africa. In fact, some of the biggest names in historical Christianity, guys like Augustine, were North Africans. And, um, and then it was very popular uh, throughout, you know, uh, Greece and Turkey and I mean, one of the first countries to be labeled an official Christian um, country was Armenia. And then, you know, that was followed by the, the rise of the Byzantine Empire. And from that stage, uh, really up until the 7th century, when Islam came into view and Islam kind of pushed Christianity out of the Arabian Peninsula and North Africa and parts of the Middle East, uh, all of those areas were predominantly Jewish and Christian. And that's really when you get um, the growth of uh, medieval European Christianity. And the, the prevalence of Islam had a, a big part to do with that. But, you know, historical Christianity has been all over the map. And I think realistically, the, uh, there was a poll that was done, I believe it was last year in 2021, um, that said uh, demographically, the average Christian now is a is a uh, a woman from the global south, um, probably Africa, but the global south in general. And so I think we're actually seeing a shift once again, and in the next few decades and maybe a couple of centuries, Christianity might move away from the West and actually go back to where it was for a long, long time in the East. I mean, if you go right back to the beginning, right? This is what I really find funny with white supremacists who try to co-opt Christianity. They present Jesus as this Aryan who's with you know, blonde hair, blue eyes, that sort of thing. Much like some of the uh, older Jesus movies, right? Where Jesus is like the Swedish guy or whatever. I'm just like, no, he was actually 
Jewish. And like you mentioned earlier, Augustine, let's sit on that for a moment, the most influential theologian in the Western church was from North Africa. Yeah. It really goes Paul, Augustine, Aquinas, Luther. Like, yeah. if you want to really boil down the influences on Western Christianity, that those are the individuals. And certainly, yes, there were a lot of missionaries from the West that went throughout the world. That's true. But, you know, uh, by some estimates, I think the country that sends out the highest number of missionaries is United States. And mind you, that doesn't necessarily mean white missionaries, because the United States actually has a lot of different kinds of people. And then number two, as uh, if I am correct, I heard that it's South Korea. And so this idea of um, you know Christianity being a Western religion is a, a bit overblown, I think. And in fact, if you look at some of the 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 way Christianity spread. Right from an early age, I mean, Christianity spread to India and even China. I believe that Christianity arrived, if I'm not wrong, maybe you can correct me, Wes. I, I believe that the um, that Christianity arrived in China, I think in the mm. 600s or 700s or something like that. It, it arrived in China pretty early. Same thing with India. In fact, there is a sect in India, the church there is supposed was supposedly founded by Mark, right? As in- Thomas. Sorry, Thomas. That's what I meant. The doubting Thomas, right? Yeah. Um, went to India. That's right. Um, so, I mean, it, this is like, the spread has has not always been in the westwardly direction either, right? Kind of went all over the place. And so, yeah, again, this idea that Christianity is a Western religion, very skewed, if that's how you- look at it. Yeah. Yeah. The, the church in Kerala in India, um, the traditional story is that uh, Thomas went there in the early 50s uh, AD. <laughs> so we're talking first century, right? And uh, yeah, I, I believe you're right. I believe it was um, in China in, I mean, there's a, the, I think the first written documentation comes from the eighth century, um, but I'm pretty sure it's the, 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 sixth or seventh century where we have, you know, places of worship that are established within in China. And there are evidence, uh, I believe, um, there's evidence earlier than that of crosses in cemeteries, which seem to indicate that there were there were Christians even in, I believe it was the fourth century, I could be wrong on that. But nonetheless, yeah, and I think there's something to say what you were saying earlier, Steve, about this idea of Jesus being portrayed as white. And that's kind of got a bad rap. It, in the you know last uh, decade or so, and I think there's a good reason for that. As the historian in me wants to say, obviously that's inaccurate, right? Uh, blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus is inaccurate. But at the exact same time, there is this long history in the portrayal of biblical figures, particularly in Europe, as like say fair skinned Europeans, and I think part of that was not necessarily a whitewashing. Maybe some of it was, but I think it was more a kind of representation of imagining those individuals as something that we can recognize. In their uh, own the, one of the earliest Yeah, contextualization. One of the earliest depictions of Jesus is uh, Christ Pentecrator 
in St. Catherine's Monastery. And it basically portrays Jesus as a white European, um, despite the fact that they would have been well aware that he was a, a you know, a brown-skinned Middle Eastern man. But even in some of the depictions within a Chinese art, Indian art, I mean, the, the church in um, Africa, uh, in places like Ethiopia, so the Ethiopian church can trace its its origination back to the fourth century. And we have countless depictions of biblical characters being black Ethiopians. And I think part of this is less of, you know, trying to wash over the actual historical Jesus and more of saying, yeah, how do we understand these individuals? And that's not to say that Jesus wasn't a Middle Eastern Jew. He obviously was. Uh, but I think, you know, we can... Also, say that there is some truth to representing a Jesus that understands who we are, and the physical depiction of that might look like a Jesus who we can relate to. Jesus is for everyone, is the idea, right? And in Christianity, there is this impulse. And I think uh, John Dixon uh, does a good job of portraying the sort of the transcultural nature of Christianity. So it's not at all surprising then to see Jesus portrayed in different ways, whether him being portrayed as a white European, or I've seen paintings of Jesus portrayed as an Asian, like in, in South Korea, like there are portrayals of Jesus and his mother, Mary, Virgin Mary, and they're dressed in hanbok and they look straight up Korean. So sometimes it irks me a little bit about, you know, people complaining about, you know, the sort of the white European Jesus saying, oh, this is whitewashing. And then they look at the portrayals in Ethiopia and, and Korea, China, or wherever. It's like, oh, how diverse, you know, that sort of thing. I'm just like, okay, can we see double standard? Hmm. But all that to say, yeah, yeah, Christianity is far from a Western religion. It, it is truly a transcultural religion. Um, Jesus is for everyone. Okay, I think we... <laughs> <laughs> I think we exhausted that one. How about how about the next one, yeah. Steve? How about we talk about the the idea that good people go to heaven and bad people mm -hmm. go to hell? What what do you have to say about that? Why is that a myth? I thought that one was true. So you got to set me straight. <laughs> you know, this is one of those things. Um, this is typically a, a misimpression that people have from those who are outside of the church. Those who are not very well acquainted with Christianity. But I mean, truth be told, sometimes that's how people think inside the church as well. I see that from time to time and, and it really bugs me because uh, Christianity revolves around the idea of grace. The idea right from the get-go is you can't save yourself. You're, you're kind of screwed. It's I mean, everybody, in a sense, is destined to be alienated from God forever. And so you have to be saved by grace. You can't do enough good things to earn your way into heaven. So we often use this illustration of, you know, you running the red light and getting pulled over. And the police officer comes to your window and says, okay, license and registration police kind of thing. and if you went, oh, but, 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 officer, you don't know how these things work. 
right? Uh, I, I ran like 10 green lights on the way here. And this is the first, surely, right? Like I, I should be let go free because I'm a pretty good driver kind of thing. What's the police officer going to say? License and registration, please, right? Why? Because it is of no credit to you that you should keep the law that you were supposed to keep in the first place. And if you break the law, you have to settle the account, so to speak, mm. by paying the penalty. Uh, the problem for humanity is that the kind of penalty that they have to pay is death. Everybody. It's not the sort of thing that we can pay by doing good things. And that's why we need somebody to stand in our place and pay the penalty that we can't pay. And that's where Jesus comes in, right? So yes, there is a sense in which you you want to be a good person, but in Christianity, especially in Protestantism, we believe that um, it's not good works that gets you into heaven. It is the grace of God that brings you into heaven. And doing good works is not so that you can earn your way to heaven, but it comes as a natural response of gratitude to the grace that you have received. So if anything, um, I mean, other religions like for example, Buddhism, Islam, like other major religions, you look at them, like you have to do good works to earn salvation or whatever the equivalent of it, right? Um, so other religions teach you do, 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 and Christianity says, actually done. Jesus did it. It's all done. There's nothing that you can contribute to it, but because you're now dead to sin and you live to Christ, you want to live like Christ. So it's not like you're trying to, you're in deficit and you're trying to break even. Actually, you start with, in a sense, blank slate. And I would even say, no, actually, you start with all the merits of Christ mm -hmm. and you just go from there. You and, and you're not really adding to anything. It's just a grateful response. So Christianity is the only religion that I know where it says actually being a good person is not the point. Yeah. Yes, that comes later. That naturally comes as a result of your salvation, but that's not the point. Yeah, I think you're exactly right, um, Steve. Sometimes I say, you know, the Bible is absolutely clear that all good people go to heaven. You know, that's not a debated fact. The problem is Luke 18 and Mark 10 say only God is good. So who's going to heaven? <laughs> um, you know, sometimes I joke that uh, our application to join the Trinity has been denied. We fail the minimum requirement. So <laughs> we have a problem, right? If, if everybody who's good goes to heaven, but only God is good, then only God goes to heaven. So, and that's where it's exactly what you were saying, Steve. You know, we are saved by faith. We are saved by faith alone. And if you're a Christian, if you believe in Christ, Christ, then you're justified. You're made right in God's sight through faith alone. But the caveat to that is that justified faith is never alone. You're saved by faith alone, but not faith that remains alone. And I think that's where unbelievers might get the, the false impression that we believe that we're saved through our obedience, because we do put a lot of emphasis on obedience, because obedience is an important factor. I mean, you cannot read the Gospels and see Jesus telling people to obey. You know, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. 
And the the misunderstanding of that is that like exactly what you said, Steve, that 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 we're trying to earn our way up to pay that debt. But the the misunderstanding of that is is that exactly what you said, we can't pay that debt. And so that's where the these concepts of justif or not justification, um, this concept of mercy and grace come into things, right? And mercy is not getting what you do deserve. So you've committed a crime, you deserve punishment. Mercy is you not getting that punishment. And then grace, it's similar to mercy, but it's not exactly the same. While mercy is not getting what you do deserve, grace is getting what you don't deserve. So now, not only are you given mercy, you're not getting the punishment you deserve, but you're getting grace where now you're being adopted as a child of God. It was uh, the English evangelist, Leonard Ravenhill, who said, Jesus did not come into the world to make bad men good. He came into the world to make dead men live. And so, you know, it's not about you earning your way to heaven because that's not going to work. But I think, um, like you were talking about other world religions, they, they uh, in my talk on do all religions lead to God, um, one of the things that I end on is that if you study other world religions, they're based on pretty much one of three things. You know, pragmatism, do this and you'll be saved. Uh, emotionalism, feel this and you'll be saved. Or intellectualism, think this and you'll be saved. And the Christian worldview says that you cannot feel, think, or um, do enough to earn your way to heaven. And so unlike the think this and you'll be saved, feel this and you'll be saved, um, or do this and you'll be saved, Christianity says you're saved and now you can go ahead and think, do, and feel. And so it's not the basis by which you're saved, uh, but it, 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 is a, it is a fruit, it is a sign of salvation that we have that. And I think that's where people from the outside looking in, and maybe even some Christians, like you said, um, who may, might be misunderstanding that, think that there's an aspect of we can we can climb up that ladder when in reality i mean we've set fire to the ladder purposefully um and we'll never be able to uh restore that yeah and on our own and it for me when i look at that that gives me a great deal of sense of relief right because listen if you have to climb the that ladder to get to heaven um, in a sense, you have to maintain that on your own. It's not just mm. that the uh, uh, even if you get there, now you have to maintain that, right? But if it was done by somebody else, there's nothing for you to maintain. You can just, you know, relax yeah. and just live out the salvation you have now received. You got me. I'm sold. <laughs> I'll become a Christian. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I I hope this uh, brings hope to whoever is listening who really needs to hear it. Thank you, everyone, so much for joining us for this week's edition of the AC Podcast. You know the drill. Go out there, love God, love people, and we'll come back next week with more stuff to think about. Until then, take care of yourselves out there. <laughs>